0: So as Paul mentioned, we take part of our summer to go through a number of the Psalms. Last year, we went through Psalm 1 through 8. And this summer, we're going to go through Psalm 9 through 17. And the Psalms are essential to our faith as Christians because the Psalms shape us in worship. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that being shaped in the true worship of God is important. Because what you worship will dictate how you live your life. What you worship will dictate how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you live in relationships with other people, how, what, what you give your heart and your life to. And so for the Psalms to be vital to our life means that the Psalms, uh, they influence every aspect of our life, even our cultural and political engagement. This may seem a bit counterintuitive, but if you're familiar with the Psalms, this actually won't surprise you, that there is much language in the Psalms that is political, God's relationship to the nations and God's people's relationship to the nations all over the Psalms. And so worship very much is intended to shape how we engage our world culturally and politically. And It's said in our society that everything is political. And if you pay attention to the world, you, you recognize that this is true. And in our increasingly divided social system and in our politics, here's the message that you're going to hear your participation is demanded. Like, if you're not participating politically, then you're complicit in the injustice in the world. Slogans like, silence is violence, vote or die. Like, look, the the politics is the civil religion of our nation, and if you are not a faithful worshiper of that religion, then you will face the wrath of society. And so in the midst of that turmoil here's what happens all the cultural and political movements come sweeping in and they make their promises of change their promises of quote unquote salvation and for a lot of those movements they expect you to check your christianity at the door your faith sort of has to take second place or you don't even speak up as a christian you need to be submitted to this movement others may hey they're they're okay with your faith as long as you submit your faith to the cause. Don't ever allow your faith to question or challenge, but, but if you submit it, if it becomes subservient to the, the cultural and political cause, then, well, yeah, your faith is welcomed. This is the air we breathe in our society. And the scary thing, the sad thing, the thing we need to come to grips with and be honest about is too often, Christians, we get caught up in this. We get caught up in the cultural and political movements, promising cultural and political power, and we end up submitting our faith to these movements. So let's take a moment of reflection here in the midst of sort of the politically charged climate of our times. What has your time, your energy, your devotion, your voice, your money, Well, what in our society really frustrates you or really brings you joy? What's shaping your cultural and political engagement? Is it things like Fox News or CNN or Facebook or Twitter? How about the book of Psalms? How do the Psalms shape your cultural and political engagement? And that's why I want us to turn to Psalm 9 this morning and reflect on the ways that the Psalms shape us. See, the Psalms shape us in worship, worship of true God and his glory and his goodness and the worship of Jesus and his majesty and his grace. And worship of the true God is this wonderful countercultural thing. It's this wonderful act of resistance whereby we're shaped in things other than the cultural and political voices of our day and shaped by something greater. And this is what Psalm 9 does for us. Shapes us in worship. And by shaping us in worship, it helps us to see where our hope should be. And so here's the line that I want to look at that Psalm 9 draws for us. It draws a line between two things. The impermanence of nations and the permanence of the kingdom. The impermanence of nations and the permanence of the kingdom. It's along those lines, that contrast, that I want us to reflect this morning, that we may be shaped in our cultural and political engagement by God's word. So if you turn to me to Psalm 9, let's first consider the impermanence of the nations. So David opens Psalm 9 with this incredible joyful declaration. That he praises God for His goodness and His grace, and he says, "I'm going to tell of the Lord's deeds." And then he specifically says what those deeds are in verses three through six. "When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish." you've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them perished. So central to the worship and celebration and praise in Psalm 9 is this truth, that God has brought an end to nations. That God has worked his power to bring about the downfall of nations. Now David probably has in mind both the victories that the Lord gave David on his behalf, so the military victories that David led, but also God's victory over the nations that he gave Israel as they left Egypt and entered into the promised land. But in both cases, here's what happened. There were nations with their political and cultural and military might. They tried to perpetuate their power and their control, and God brought them to nothing. And so here's the contrast for us. Look, nations, political systems, seek permanence through their cultural and their political and their economic systems, through military strength. They seek permanence. They seek permanence by trying to defeat other nations. They seek permanence by trying to perpetuate their systems. They seek permanence by shaping the people of the nation to desire the nation's permanence. Now, this isn't entirely a bad thing, Like, we should care about political peace and social order. Those things are good, but here's what nations will do. They want you to put your hope in their permanence, that your greatest hope is for the system to continue. But here's what Psalm 9 tells us. Nations are impermanent. Nations do not last. And this is the unequivocal testimony of history. No matter the nation, no matter the empire, no matter how great it was, God brought it to nothing. Think of the great empires of the past. We're talking Egyptian or Assyrian or Babylonian or Persian or Macedonian or Roman or Ottoman or the British Empire. All those nations brought to nothing. The great nations of today, you think of the power of Russia or China, will be brought to nothing. The United States is not permanent. The United States is not going to be the eternal kingdom that lasts throughout eternity. No, one day the United States will end. This is not to be doom and gloom and scary and and say, hey, the sky is falling. This is just to make a statement of fact, a historical and biblical fact. But here's the other piece of this. Here's what else Psalm 9 tells us. It's not just that nations cease. It's not as if sort of the second law of thermodynamics kicks in and the nation runs out of steam and then it's over. No, God is the one who does this. God rebukes the nations. God blots out their name. God uproots their cities. God is the one who brings about the end to the wicked. Because here is what is true of any nation. The fight for permanence the fight for permanence, the fight that we see going on for permanence is always, always, always shot through with injustice. Humans, at our core, we're sinful. We're sinful, and so our systems are all broken. We create systems, whether it be political, economic, military, whatever it is, we create systems with sin. Even the best, humanly speaking, even the best shot that we get are still sinful, And God judges them. God brings them down because of their sin and brings them down because of their injustice. Look, every system, no matter how good it is, is shot through with injustice. And we need to be honest about that even for our own nation. Look, for all the benefits of free market capitalism, what's a part of the system? Greed, consumerism, exploitation, massive amounts of debt. But for all the greatness of representative democracy, we still have unjust laws that get passed. Like for all the cultural and political freedom that we have in our country, what else has come with it? Well, how about sexual devastation? How about rampant consumerism? How about numbing ourselves with an endless supply of drugs and pornography and entertainment? How about the ongoing history of racism that we're being so confronted with in our day right now, all of that has been part of our system. As great as the United States has been in many ways, our system is shot through with sin, and one day God will judge it. Nations are impermanent. Nations are impermanent. And here is the great poetic justice that God unleashes on nations. The values and the structures that nations use to try to keep permanence, the very things that they fight for to sort of stay, to stay in place are the very things that God uses to undo them. Here's what verses 15 through 17 tell us. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to shield all the nations that forget God. God brings down judgment on the injustice and sin of the nations by allowing that sin and injustice to run its course. And here's the great irony the grab for permanence leads to impermanence, the grab for power and control leads to a loss of power and control. And it is sobering for us to think. Of the ways that that is true for our nation today. Is your cultural and political engagement defined by trying to keep permanent that which will always be impermanent? Does your hope rise and fall in the permanence and the greatness of a nation? See, Psalm 9 sings a song to reorient the people of God and our hearts towards this truth. Put no hope in the nations. Psalm 9 sings a song for us today, living in the United States, to reorient our heart to say our hope is not in American greatness. Look, again, America has a beautiful history in some ways. Not bashing America here. But let's be honest and let's be frank about where our hope is. Like, our cultural and political engagement is not driven, as the people of God, it is not driven by American exceptionalism and American permanence. Look, for the great things that the free market and democratic, being a uh, representative democracy, and loads and loads of cultural and political freedom, as great as those things are, they're not our hope. And they do not demand our loyalty. Our loyalty belongs somewhere else. So church, do we put our hope in the permanence of something that is not permanent? Are we putting our hope in something that will not last? Are we putting our hope in systems that are made by men that are shot through with sin and that God will one day judge? Oh, Psalm 9 calls us to something far greater, far greater hope, far greater permanence. And so rather than fighting for and giving our lives to perpetuate something that is impermanence, Psalm 9 celebrates and sings and calls us to something permanent. It calls us to a greater hope. Our cultural and political engagement must be shaped by something bigger. And that bigger thing is the permanence of the kingdom of God. Here's what verses 7 and 8 tell us. David declares this, In contrast to the impermanence of the nations, he says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Rather than an impermanent nation that perpetuates injustice and then passes along in history, the Lord and his throne and his kingdom are established forever. And this is good news because it is a kingdom and a throne that is righteous and just. Like our hope for justice and righteousness in our world is not a certain economic system or a political system or us holding on to cultural and political power. Our hope for justice and righteousness in the world is the kingdom of God. David surveyed history. He looked at all the nations that had come and gone, and then he sees the the permanence of the kingdom of God, and he rejoices. He sees nation after nation after nation perpetuating injustice, and then he looks at the throne of God and sees there is a righteous and just rule, and he celebrates that. That is his hope. That is our hope. And look, on paper, on paper, We can amen this. I think as good Christians, we're like, well, of course that's our hope. We can amen this all the time. But here's the rub. We still live in a fallen world. We still live in a broken world where there is sin and suffering and injustice. Like Psalm 9 reorients us to the righteousness and justice of the throne of God and the rule of God. But he has yet to end evil in finality. So here's the rub, here's the question for us. In this world, as we face suffering and evil and injustice, will we trust God and the power of his kingdom, or are we going to trust our own cultural and political power? Will we put our hope in the permanence of the kingdom or the impermanence of a nation? Or maybe to ask it a little bit differently. Will our cultural and political engagement be driven by fear and sinful anger, or will it be driven by the fruit of the Spirit? Things like love and joy and peace and hope. That's the question before us, because here's, again, we have to be honest Christians. So often we have been motivated and manipulated by fear. Look, you're going to lose your rights. You're going to lose religious freedom you're going to lose cultural and political power and influence. Or on the other side, hey, you're going to be seen as bigots. You're going to be seen as oppressive and backward. And so fear, 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 all meant to stir us up so we give our hearts over to a certain political and cultural movement. Or how often do we listen to angry men and women that allow us to stir up our sinful anger and then we join them in their anger. When God's word tells us that the anger of men does not bring about the righteousness of God. Church, we need to be honest. Look, it's not as if there aren't problems. It's not as if there aren't legit concerns and legit worries and legit fears. These things are real, but if we allow ourselves to be given over to fear and to sinful anger, here's what happens we just jump into the pile of this will to power and this will to power and all the power plays that go on in our society and all the mudslinging and all the ugliness. We jump right into that mess. We sell our birthright as the sons and daughters of God over to a political party and a political leader that is going to fail us over and over and over again. And then we end up either explicitly or complicitly being responsible for the injustice in our society rather than speaking out and acting against with prophetic power. Church, we have something greater than fear and anger to ground our political engagements. We have hope in a permanent kingdom. This is what Psalm 9 sings of. It sings and reminds us. It's not anger, it's not fear that drives us but hope in the kingdom of God. Our confidence is in a permanent kingdom. Is that what is shaping your cultural and political engagement? Because no matter how confusing and convoluted this world and we get, no matter how the angry accusations fly, no matter how much the judgmental canceling culture goes flying around, look, we have a permanent kingdom and we have a king who sits on a throne and that throne is righteous and just. It may get confusing out there in the world, but here's our hope, that our God judges righteously. He sees truly what is good and what is beautiful and what is righteous. And we put our hope there because that kingdom and that throne is established forever. Forever. But for those of you who are tempted to fear, because fear is so easy, so easy, especially in our current moment. But if you're tempted to fear, here's what Psalm 9 also tells you. Not only is the Lord the king who sits on his throne and judges righteously and justly in power. David also tells us this in verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O oh Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Look for those who experience oppression and marginalization and persecution. For those who are weak and weary, because you've been in the fight to push back darkness and injustice in our world, the Lord is a stronghold for you. A stronghold is a place of protection a place of refuge and rest that is who the lord is look those who are given over to fear those who are given over to sinful anger those people don't have a refuge don't have a stronghold that is for those who are trying to build a stronghold and hold on to it in their own power and hold on to that impermanent stronghold that they can never keep and the fear and the anger betrays the fact they know they can't keep it Friends, that's not us. We have a stronghold, not political parties, not political leaders, not cultural and political power and movements, the Lord. And here's the beauty of what Psalm 9 tells us. If you know the Lord, for those of you who know the Lord, those of you that have experienced his grace and his power and his protection and his provision and his transforming work in your life, oh, you trust him. If you have experienced the goodness of the Lord, oh, you trust Him. And so we have to ask ourselves if our stronghold is politics and political leaders and sinful human systems, do we know the Lord? Have we trusted in Him? Are we drinking deeply of His goodness and His grace and His power and His love and His provision? and his righteousness? Is his kingdom the kingdom that we live in the good of? If not, let me encourage you. Put your hope in the Lord, the only true, lasting stronghold. So in Psalm 9, we see that David's heart is shaped in this hope of a permanent kingdom. And he has confidence that the Lord is his stronghold. Why? Because David is a worshiper. Oh, David was a man of action. David was an incredible man of action. If you know his story, he jumped into the battle. David fought against injustice. David fought for righteousness in Israel. But he fought because he was a man of worship. What shaped his great, big, bold action was his worship. And so we see in Psalm 9, over and over and over again, David is celebrating God's faithfulness. He's celebrating God's power to save in verses 1 and 2 and then verse 11. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name. O Most High, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. David was shaped in joyful worship. And in being shaped in that joyful worship, he, he was able to look back and see the faithfulness of God to save. And that gave him confidence that God was still faithful to save. And he would be faithful to save. And so David looks back and he worships. And that brings him confidence and shapes him in hope in the present and for the future. Friends, if we are going to be shaped in hope in the permanence of the kingdom. If we are going to have confidence that the Lord is our stronghold, then we need to be worshiped, formed people as well. We need to drink deeply of God's word and experience his spirit. We need to be those who are shaped by the Psalms and not by our culture. Friends, if we are going to have our cultural and political engagements, it is going to have the shape of worship, then we too need to be like David and we need to be regularly looking back and seeing God's faithfulness to save. We need to be celebrating God's faithfulness to save because we celebrate something even greater than what David celebrated. Because what David looked back on, all the victories that he saw God do were pointing forward to something that you and I now get to experience. Something that has taken place in history that is greater than the exodus out of Egypt and entering into the promised land and all the victories that David experienced. No, a greater victory has been won. When Jesus Christ stepped into this world, God the Son put on human flesh and he stepped into this world and he declared this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he puts that kingdom on display by healing the sick and casting out demons and forgiving sin and raising the dead. He puts the kingdom on display by confronting wicked rulers and wicked religious systems and says, hey, your power is not going to last. He puts the kingdom on display when he willingly lays down his life and allows evil men and evil systems and evil spiritual forces to strike him dead. But in that death is not defeat. In that death is salvation because in that death, Jesus takes on himself the wrath of God for sin. He takes on the judgment that you and I and all the sinful nations of this world deserve. And by taking that on himself, he makes it possible that we can be forgiven and set free. And here's the glory of the gospel. Jesus doesn't stay dead. Jesus is resurrected from the grave in power and in victory. He's resurrected as the reigning king with all authority in heaven given to him. And what does he do? In his resurrection, in his death and resurrection, he puts the evil authorities and rulers to open shame, as Colossians 3 says. He defeats them. He says, your power is not the last word. The only thing permanent, the only thing lasting is the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that evil has a shelf life. The resurrection of Jesus shows us that salvation and forgiveness and freedom are ours in Christ. Look, yes, it's still hard. If you give yourself to fighting injustice, if you give yourself to loving and serving in the city, if you give yourself to being culturally and politically engaged, which we should be, you're going to find it's hard work. It's tiring work. It's frustrating work. Sometimes it feels as if evil is going to win. But because Christ is raised from the dead, because the kingdom of God is here, as we sang this morning, our hope is is that one day, that evil will be put to end. And we can love and we can serve. Because our hope is not just in what Christ has done. Our hope is not just in what Christ is doing and the kingdom advancing. Our hope is also that Christ is coming back. We, with David, proclaim this. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Look, it seems like even though Christ has come, even though the kingdom is advancing, even though we have the Spirit, even though there is salvation, sometimes it feels like evil is getting the last word. Sometimes it feels like the poor and the oppressed and the afflicted are just being oppressed and afflicted and pushed down even more and more. But here is the great news. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The oppressed and the poor will not forever be afflicted. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to set free the captive. He's going to raise up and restore those who have been afflicted and oppressed and killed. He is going to avenge his people. He is going to deal with evil. The first time Jesus came, he let evil give it their best shot. But when Jesus comes a second time, he's going to give evil his best shot, and it's game over. That's our hope, church. That's where we engage politically and culturally from that hope that Jesus is coming back. And so, friends, the hope that we have is far greater than any offer that, that, that a cultural, political movement could give. The, the, the kingdom that we put our hope in, the permanent kingdom is greater than any system that we could establish here. Are you being shaped by that kingdom and by that hope? Or are you drinking deeply of Jesus and being shaped by his word and his spirit? Friends, if I can be so bold here, Why don't we shut off the Fox News and the CNN? Why don't we sign off of Facebook and Twitter? And why don't we drink deeply of Jesus and his word? Or why don't we be people of prayer and deep communion? Why don't we be people who worship deeply and allow that to shape us? Yeah, okay, Facebook's fine. Twitter's fine. Watching the news is fine. But if that has your heart... Not only are you putting your hope in something that's impermanent, you're missing out. You're missing out on true joy and peace and hope that only Christ can give. So we wait for Christ to come with great hope. We engage with great hope. But until that day comes, not only are we celebrating, not only are we rejoicing, we also lament. In verses 13 and 14 and then 19 and 20, David laments. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David is crying out for justice. He sees that justice has not perfectly encaptured our world yet. And he cries out, he says, Lord, bring your justice. Lord, show the nations that you are God, you are the Lord. Show them that they're just but men and they pass away. And so while we rejoice, while we hope in this world, we know the story isn't over. We know sin and suffering are still part of the equation. And so in our engaging culturally and politically, we're those who rejoice, but we're those who lament. We lament and hope, but we lament. We cry out for justice. We cry out for mercy. We cry out for God to come and end all the evil and oppression in our world. We long for that kingdom to be completely realized. And so we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Come set this world right. And here's what this does for us. When we are crying out and lament, it guards us from being angry in a sinful way. It guards us from fear, and it guards us from being given over to anger because we long for and we put our hope in only what God can do and God fixing it. It keeps us from jumping into the back-and-forth power plays in our society. It keeps us from slinging mud. We're brokenhearted, but we're longing for Christ to come. When we lament along with our rejoicing, when we lament in hope, Here's what we're able to do. We're able to step into the broken places in our society. We're able to love and serve our neighbor and our community. And we're able to do that with this in our hearts. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the cultural and political engagement the Psalms shape us in. So friends, if everything is political, if politics is all there is, if the systems of this world, if that's all we have, look, here's the end of that. Frustration, emptiness, false hope, false savior, ultimately judgment. The gospel calls us to something greater. It calls us to be worshipers. It causes us to step out of the political system, stop being a cog in the political wheel, stop being a pawn in the the games of men that just want to use you for their own agenda and step and be part of the kingdom of God being built up and transformed in the worship of the true God. That, that is what the gospel calls us to. That is who we are as sons and daughters of God. That is how we are shaped. So look, I'm not going to stand up here and say, this is the exact way you need to engage culturally and politically. Look, there's wonderful freedom. There's wonderful room for disagreements and discussion and and growing and working that out. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. But however we choose to engage politically, let us engage as those who are being shaped in worship and those who have given our loyalty, our hearts, to the kingdom of God and our King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.